we've got the real faithful members of Veritas here today, willing to come out in the storm. Some of you probably came in a boat today. It's a lot of rain. We're glad you're here. A Merry Christmas. A lot is, as you heard in the announcements, a lot of things happening this month. Uh, I do want to encourage you. I want to say it again. If you can make it out this Wednesday, we would love for you to be here. Uh, so we're going to have a worship service here Wednesday, 6 o'clock. Uh, different, however, from a typical worship service here on a Sunday. Um, some elements that we don't normally have and, and then some elements on Sunday that, that won't be here on Wednesday night. Um, no, no long sermon, just a short, uh, more of a devotional. Uh, we're going to have some testimony. I'm still going to sing together. Uh, and then we're going to have that time for a community afterwards and going to have some food. So food is always good. Always a good way to get Christians out. Um, so we're going to try to keep the service from about 6 to 7, though, because we want you to bring your kids. We want your kids in here with you. So we're going to try and make that possible by making the service not too long and then that time for fellowship afterwards. So especially those of you who maybe aren't in a community group because it just doesn't work for you or you haven't, you haven't done that yet, uh, it's an opportunity for you to, to come down and spend some time with other people who call Veritas their, their church home. So, again, if you can make it this Wednesday at 6, that'd be great. We've got three weeks left in 2 Timothy. Um, We're going to finish up chapter 3 today. And then we've got two more sermons that I have planned for chapter 4. And then we'll do a few topical sermons. And then within the first few weeks of January, we're going to get right into Genesis. And we'll be in Genesis for the better part of 2013. So looking forward to that and praying for that already. If you have your Bible open. Please open to the text that Curtis just read. And then I want you to look specifically now before I pray at verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one from in front of you there and open it up. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 14. In verse 14, you've got the main point of what Paul is saying to Timothy. And everything before, everything after that we're going to read today is going to support This one point. So I want to get it in our heads before we even move on and encourage you to look back at this verse as I preach because I want you to remember what the main thing that Paul is saying today to Timothy is. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And what Timothy has learned and what he has firmly believed is the gospel. So Paul is telling Timothy, continue in the gospel. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Press on. It's this metaphor that Paul uses all over the place in his letters. That the Christian life is like a race. It is like a a marathon. It is like a journey. Okay, And we are moving in a direction. And there's a finish line that we want to cross. And there's, there's no giving up in the middle of it. Okay, There's no, there's no pulling up and, and exiting. There's no hitting the sideline. We are called to continue to keep going no matter what. And there are times where it is very difficult to continue. And there's times that we want to give up and there's times that we want to quit. And some of you are about to quit. Some of you have quit. And so you need this jump start. 
So verse 14 again. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Verses 10 through 13 is the first section that we'll look at. And it is supporting Paul's charge to Timothy to continue. And then we'll look at verses 14 through 17. Also supporting Paul's charge to Timothy to continue. Hopefully we all will be encouraged to continue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out here this morning. We're thankful for giving us a word to read. We're thankful for giving us your Holy Spirit to understand these words. We're thankful for giving us a a church family, people we can love and people who love us, people we can hold accountable to what we're going to read today and people who will hold us accountable to what we're reading today. God, we know as we come to your word that we need your help. God, many of us, we know that our proclivity is to make your word say things that it does not say. Uh, and to assume the best of ourselves and to assume the worst of others. And we need your help today, God, to see rightly your word and your truth. We pray that you would fill us with that truth today. And that it would bring about good change in our lives. That we would not be the same when we leave your word. We'd be different in a good way. Because you've used your word powerfully in our soul, in our hearts, to change us. To make us more like Jesus. To make us more loving toward you and others. To make us more content to make us more faithful, patient, steadfast. Whatever it is you have for us today, we look forward to it. We pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So two sections if you want to keep track and you're a note taker. First, verses 10 through 13. And then we'll spend time looking at verses 14 through 17. Verse 10, Paul's words to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Well, Paul says first to Timothy, you, however, in other words, he's making a distinction. He's contrasting Timothy with those people that he's just described in verses 1 through 9. Okay, that was them. But you, however, you're different, Timothy. You have followed me. Now, what were those people that we looked at last week? Okay, Paul said that in the last days, which we are in right now. Last days are right now. Things are getting ugly right now. Things are probably only going to get worse right now. So, enjoy. He said that in these last days, people are going to be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. We're supposed to love God. We're made to love God. But we're going to love ourselves. And you all know that that is one of the greatest temptations in your life. It is to love yourself. We are tempted to love ourselves, to make much of me, to put my my own name in lights, to, to receive praise and, and adoration myself. 
to have people make a big deal of me, not to make a big deal of God. And so we like people who make a big deal about us. And we like people who think that we're wonderful. And we want to, hey, can I spend time with you again? Because it feels good to have people around us that are going to make a big deal of us. We like going to churches. Some of you are like, I don't know why I keep coming to this church. Because we like to go to churches that make a big deal of, of us. And make much of us. And center things around us. This is just our natural propensity is to love ourselves. Now, some of you have even seen this, that when you are loving others and when you're loving God and you think you're doing well, you've, you've found in yourself this dirty, nasty little motive underneath it all. And you've caught yourself when you're loving someone else and actually you're loving them is only loving yourself. Because you're loving them in front of people. And you're loving them so that they will compliment you. And you're loving them so that they will thank you. And you're, you're loving them and then you're, you're doing good things and good deeds. And you're, you're, you're posting it. And you're on Facebook. And you're telling others. And you're hoping that people will like you. Literally, like you. You want that and you, you feed off of that. And so you, you find that oh, here I am. I'm doing good at this. Finally, I'm not concerned with myself. I'm loving other people. I'm being kind. I'm being patient. I'm being generous. I'm in church. I'm loving God. And then your face, right? You've had this happen with this dirty, nasty little motive. And you discover that there is this, what Jonathan Edwards called this enlightened self-interest. And here you are. You're serving others. You're serving God. Okay, the appearance is of godliness, which was what we looked at last week. The appearance is there. You're doing the right things. You're saying the right things. You're, you're singing the songs. You, you know the language. You're in church every week. You're around the right people. When you open your mouth, Scripture comes out. I mean, everything looks good. But there are many who have that appearance. And then when you dig down deeper, you find that it's a heart that loves himself, herself, and doesn't actually love others, doesn't actually love God. And Paul says this is going to be a big problem until Jesus comes back. It's going to be a big problem in the church community. People will love themselves more than they will love God. They will love themselves instead of loving God. But you, Timothy, however, you are different. That's what Paul's saying. You, however, have... And to summarize what he says in the next few verses, you have followed me, Paul says. You, however, have followed me. And when he uses this word followed, he, he means closely. When he says you followed my teaching and my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my love, my steadfastness, okay, my persecution, my suffering. When Paul says, Timothy, you follow this, the words that he uses means alongside. Not you have followed me from a distance. Not you, you've subscribed to my blog. That you are with me. That you've watched my life. It can mean you've studied at close quarters. You and me, Timothy, we've been at the same table. Bible's open. Reading through God's word together. Close relationship. Where Paul is the example 
in Timothy's life. Some of you have examples. Some of you have an example. Someone, a guy, a gal who just stands out above the rest. Paul is like that to Timothy. He knows that Timothy has been watching him closely. And Paul is saying that's a good thing. Paul says elsewhere, he, he says things like 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He calls people to imitate him. Can you imagine having the kind of life where you look at others and say, imitate me? Paul did that. Paul says, Timothy, you, you're different from these people who are loving themselves and not loving God. Okay, you're on the right track. And one of the ways I know you're on the right track is because you have followed my life. You've watched me closely. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me. Imitate me as I follow Christ, as I imitate Christ. You imagine the kind of life where you can confidently, you can confidently look at others and say, watch me. Watch me. Follow me around. Sit with me in my car. Come with me at the dinner table. Go with me to this meeting. Follow me around on my errands. Sit with me in my office as I work. Follow me and imitate me because I'm going to show you how to live life well and how to honor God and bring Him glory in all you do. And when I don't do well, you're, I'm going to show you how to repent. And I'm going to show you how to turn back. And I'm going to show you what faithfulness looks like. Imitate me. That is not unreasonable that as believers we get to a place in our Christian life where we can look, we should, at other Christians and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so remember, Paul is telling Timothy, keep going, continue. And part of the basis for Timothy to continue in the gospel is that he has followed Paul, well, and we can divide what he says here into, into three sections. What specifically is Paul telling Timothy that he has followed? What is it, in other words, that, that Timothy has seen in Paul's life? What has Timothy seen in Paul's life that is going to help him continue in the gospel? First one, it's these first three words, if we divide it into three sections. The first section, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. In other words, Timothy, you know, Paul says, my life and my doctrine, they match up. Remember he charged Timothy in 1 Timothy four sixteen and us, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And what you believe is important. How you behave is important. Right thinking is important. Right living is important. Believing the gospel is important. Holiness is important. And you cannot separate these. And you know how damaging it is because others have done it for you or you've done it for others when what you say does not line up with how you live. So Paul is telling Timothy, you've seen the consistency. You have heard my teaching. You've followed my teaching. And you've watched my conduct and my aim in life. In other words, I practiced what I preached. My life and my doctrine match up. I'm no hypocrite, Paul says. 
When I told you that I believed this and when you saw me preach this from the pulpit and I commanded others to do the same, I didn't walk down from the pulpit and when no one was looking, become somebody totally different. You've seen my teaching. You've seen my conduct. You know my aim in life. Second section. He says, you've followed my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. In other words, he says, Timothy, you followed these virtues that I'm known for. Paul was known for his faith, his love, his patience, and his steadfastness. You all have things that you're known for. You have things that you're going to be remembered for. All of you like the word legacy or not, you're going to leave a legacy. It's going to be a good one or it's going to be a bad one. You're going to be remembered in ways that will help people to continue in the gospel or you're going to be a person that people try to forget. And every one of us will fall into one of those categories. Some of you are known for things like this, for your faith, your love, your patience, your steadfastness. Maybe there's other fruits of the Spirit that you are known for. And people look at that in you and they're thankful for that in you. Some of you are known for things that you do not want to be known for. If you're funny, that's great. I want to be funny. I love being funny. I love making people laugh. But I hope when I'm dead and gone that that doesn't boil down what people remember about me. Oh, he was so funny. I will feel like a miserable failure if you look at me as someone who was funny. This is Paul's short list. This is what he is known for. These virtues of faith, love, patience, steadfastness. In terms of his relationship with God, He is known for faith. In terms of his relationship with others, his love and his patience. He's patience with people. He's loving toward people. And all of that to the end. In other words, he says, Timothy, you have followed my steadfastness. It wasn't just a season, Timothy. It wasn't like those those few years where I was really faithful. And then there was that year where I was, I was really loving, right? And I memorized all the love verses. Right? And I posted them on my mirror and I did a certain amount of good deeds every week. And then it just disappeared the next year. This is Paul at the end of his life. He's in prison. He's about to die. And he says, Timothy, you've seen my steadfastness. That's what he's calling Timothy to remember. He's calling Timothy to continue to be steadfast like Paul. And then he has this third category. You have followed my persecutions, verse 11, and sufferings. He says to Timothy, listen, you're different than those who are loving themselves rather than loving God. And I want you to continue in the gospel. And remember, you're a man who has followed my, look at me, you have followed my life and my doctrine. You have followed my virtuous life. You have followed, now he says, my persecution and my suffering. Timothy watched Paul suffer. And here's the thing, 
You learn more about someone when they're suffering than any other time in their life. When you and I suffer, we find out ourselves what we're really made of. And other people who are watching, when you're suffering, they find out what you're really made of. We find out if our faithfulness is really faithfulness. We find out if our love for God is really love for God. We find out in this crucible of suffering. And some people, and some of you either have or you are, some when they suffer, they curse God and others bless God. And some of you have blessed God and you've cursed God. And others have watched and they've learned a lot about who you are and about who Jesus is to you through your suffering. Now, Paul is telling Timothy, you've watched me suffer. And we know that Paul suffered more than any of us will suffer. And Timothy had watched him. And Paul saying, you've seen me suffer and you've seen me suffer well. When you and I suffer, we will either suffer well or we will suffer poorly. We will, ab- we will either bring glory to God. Or we will dishonor God. We will either cling to Him. Or we will run from Him. We'll either shake our fist at God. right? And this is in the form of why me? Why me? When we should say, why not me? We will either shake our fist at God. Or we will reach our arms up for God. Who else would we turn to? Paul says, Timothy, you've seen me suffer and you know I've suffered well. As an example to you when you suffer. But he calls Timothy's attention to a very specific incident of suffering. Which is interesting for us to look at. He says... You have followed my, verse 11, persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. So he brings Timothy back specifically to an account we can read about in Acts chapter 14. He says, Timothy, you you remember what happened in Lystra and Antioch and Iconium? Do you remember the suffering that I suffered there? And if you read the account, you find that it is perhaps when Paul suffered the greatest. Paul was in Lystra preaching the gospel. It was going well. You can read the account. It was going well. People were listening. People were believing. People were following him. And then some men came into Lystra from Antioch and Iconium. And they came in. And they started spreading lies about Paul and, and, and spreading lies about what he was actually saying. And they, as they were good at doing, they turned the crowd against Paul to the point that everybody in the crowd wanted to see Paul dead. They wanted to kill him. And so they took up stones to kill Paul, which is a common way for when they felt like someone had committed a crime that deserved death. There was no trial. There was no jury. It was common for a mob to surround them. And this still happens in parts of the world today. This still happens in the Middle East today. 
And so what they did is this large crowd crowded around Paul, so he had nowhere to go. And then what they would do when they would stone someone is to throw stones at them until they die. Now, the mob would close in so tightly that the person could not escape. There was nowhere to go. And usually, the person would end up curled up in a ball on the ground with their hands trying to protect their head and their neck because everybody's trying to throw stones at their head and their neck because that's going to be a kill shot. And so, Acts 14 tells us that these men were doing that And we're throwing rocks and heaving rocks on Paul, on his head, until they believed that he was dead and gone. And then these men, because they didn't want his dead body to stink up their city, they dragged him and left him for dead outside the city walls. And Paul's telling Timothy, you remember that, Timothy? You followed my persecutions and my suffering." But he's calling Timothy to remember how he suffered well. Once the mob leaves, all Paul's friends show up. And they find that he's still conscious. They sit him up and they take him on their way. Now we don't read about it, but it certainly would have taken him a long time to recover. But it says that they immediately take him to a neighboring city. And do you remember what Paul does? He starts preaching the gospel. He starts doing the very thing that almost got him killed. And then, get this, right? When he's gathered his strength, where do you want to go next, Paul? He wants to go to Antioch and Iconium. And that is the twin cities where the men came from who called for his death in Lystra. And so he goes back there and starts encouraging the Christians there. And in verse 22, he says this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to, same phrase we have here in our text. Paul was encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And he had the scars and the bruises and the cracked head to show them the kinds of tribulations and trials through which we enter the kingdom of God. Now that is suffering well. That is bringing honor and glory to God in the midst of suffering. And he's telling Timothy... Remember this. You might just find yourself in the middle of a mob and left for dead. And you don't run. You keep after the glory of God. And I want you to picture my broken body being lifted off the ground. And I want you to remember what I did when my strength was revised. And I want you to remember why I did it. You're going to need that example, Timothy. You and I are going to need this example if we're going to continue in the faith. He says this about his persecutions. He says, 
which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This is, this is, this is very, very important. Now, now first, let me just say this, that, that he, he puts persecution and suffering together. Now, if you were a Christian in the first century, most likely your greatest suffering was directly linked to persecution. It's not so much true for most of us in the 21st century in America. We will suffer still, but it may not be to the degree of persecution that they endured. But Christians were being killed and tortured in the first century because they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was the greatest suffering was persecution. Your greatest suffering, it may be from something different. But for them, it was persecution. And Paul says this about it. He says, I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. So, so here's what he's saying. He's saying, I was, I was faithful. I, I endured, but it was really God who was faithful in rescuing me. God was the faithful one who was rescuing me. Lest you look at me, Paul is saying, or we look at Paul and think he's some kind of a a superhero. He did endure. He did get up. He did go back to the city. He did keep pressing on. He did endure. And it was amazing what he accomplished. Yet, he said, it was the Lord who was rescuing me. In other words, again, right? He's pointing Timothy. This is not how great I am, Timothy. This is how great God is. This truth. Paul could say, God always rescues me. Do you know every Christian can say this because it's a promise. God will always rescue you. Now, I don't, just, I don't just mean that you're a Christian and so God has rescued you. That's true. God has rescued you. He has saved you from sin and Satan and death. But I don't just mean that. I mean that as you and I face suffering, as you and I go through these tribulations and trials or maybe persecution, that God will rescue us from every single one of them. He will rescue us from everything. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How many afflictions can you expect, Christian? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of most Usually, sometimes, don't know, maybe, all. The Lord delivers him out of them all. You remember the story in Daniel chapter 3? Of the three... Israelites who were confident that God would rescue them. Nebuchadnezzar is king, king over the Israelites. 
He's destroyed Jerusalem. He's led many of God's people into exile. They now work for him. They now live in his kingdom in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was a crazy king, he builds this big idol and then he tells everybody that, hey, this is, an, this is our new God. You're going to love this God and worship this God and you're going to bow down to this God and you're going to pray to this God and, and this is going to be your new way of life. And, and if you don't do this, he provides some incentive. He says, and if you don't do this, I have a furnace that fits people. And if you don't worship this idol that I'm building, I'm going to throw you into the furnace and you will die. And so everybody says, oh, this is, what a wonderful idol you have made. We love your idol. Let's write songs to your idol. We're, wh- what did we do without your idol? Because, of course, it's not genuine, but they don't want to be thrown into a furnace. Except for three men. Three men who say, no way. No way. We're not bowing down to your stupid idol. And word comes through some of his officials to the king that these three men are not doing what the king had told everyone to do. And so he brings them forward and says, okay, I'm going to make an example of you. And he's ready to throw them into the furnace. And do you remember their response? Do you remember how they spoke to the king? Because he says, you, you need to talk. You know, I'm the wild, my fate, your fate in the palm of my hand. You need to make a case here. Do you remember what they said? Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Seriously. The furnace is on. The flames are hot. And his servants are ready to throw them in. And he says, we don't have anything to say to you. And they go on. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's good, but it gets even better. Then they say this. But if not. In other words, but if God means for us to suffer more intensely. But if not, they said, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why do you feel that? We don't answer to you, king. And what did they say? We are confident... That God is able to rescue us. But it wasn't this name it and claim it. I love that. It was not name it and claim it. They didn't presume to know that God was going to save them. Oh, we just, come on guys, if we have enough faith, we're not saying it confidently enough. If we do this well, God will save us. They don't say that. They don't presume to know what God's will is and nor should we. They said, we know that God is able. Are you suffering right now? God is able to, in a moment, release you from that suffering. He is able to end your suffering right now. You must believe that in the world today where there is immense suffering, God in a moment could end all suffering. He is able to do that. He is powerful enough to do that. But He may not, they said. They said, but if he doesn't, we still trust that he is good and great. 
And He will stay our God. Because here's what they understood. God always rescues His people. Now sometimes, sometimes the way God rescues us is through death. This is why we can say to the Christian whose body is racked with disease, we can say confidently, this will end in victory. We can say confidently, I know that God is going to rescue you. He is going to deliver you. And He may just do that by taking your disease. And He may just do that by leaving this disease. So when Paul says that God has rescued him from all his suffering, all his persecution, realize that he is on the threshold. He knows of God's greatest rescue of him yet. Because his death is pending. Paul knew that he was about to die. And for Paul, to die meant ultimate rescue. Paul said as much. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He flat out told his friends, I wish I was dead and with Jesus. He told them that. It would be better for me to be with the Lord. You may, he said, but I'm here, apparently, because it's better for you that I stay here. He's still got some work to do through me. But, if one of those stones would have been the final blow, I'm good. This is how Paul spoke. Why? Because he knew that many are the afflictions, but God always, always rescues you. And the greatest way that God rescues a believer is the moment when He takes them from this world and brings them into His presence. There's nothing, nothing better. So he draws attention to God and says, Okay, Timothy, look at my life. You followed me. Okay, you know my teaching, you know my conduct, you know my aim in life, you know my faith, you know my love, you know my patience, you know my steadfastness, you know my persecution, you know my suffering, and you know that God has been in the hero in all of this. He is the one who has rescued me over and over again. Timothy, fasten your mind to this and remember this so that you can continue in the gospel. Which is where he goes next in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Now, before we get to verses 15 through 17, more support from what Paul is saying. There's another verse for us that speaks to, again, suffering. Are you, are you tired of hearing of suffering yet? 
I mean, it's pretty clear that Paul is chained to a wall in these two letters. He's suffering. And this is a a major theme in these last two letters. In in, in, In verse 12 and 13, I think Paul just wrecks us. Because some of you right now, when you're reading about Paul's life and when we're hearing that story about what happened in Lystra, when you hear about the shipwrecks and the beatings, and the, some of you think to yourself, I am so thankful I'm not Paul. I am so thankful that I was born on good 21st century American soil. And you think, I'm so glad because I could not have done it. Don't we think like that? I could not have endured what he endured. I'm so thankful that I don't live in that world. And Paul just gives you really bad news in verse 12. Really bad news. It is just, here's your parade, here's the rain. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Two groups of people here. Evil people who are imposters and, verse 12, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And this is what he says. It's all inclusive. He says it's an if-then statement. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. This is about your heart. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And there's no parenthesis that says, except in a couple thousand years from now, if you're born in America, you may not be persecuted. He says, no, if you desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, here's what comes along with that. Persecution. You can count on it. If you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, let's define that. Because we don't just mean Jesus is my homeboy, or he's a good example, or wow, he had some really good things to say. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, which means you know him, which means you believe him, which means you obey Him, which means you delight in Him, which means you proclaim Him. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you will suffer. And you will suffer because you love Jesus. You see, there's, there's suffering, and then there's suffering because you love Jesus. That's persecution. When others... When others bring suffering into your life because they don't love Jesus and you do love Jesus. That's persecution. And I don't know how to get around this in God's word. If you desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. If you love Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. If you're a true Christian, you are going to be persecuted. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
Can you imagine being the disciples listening to this? Again, this is not a selling point for staying a disciple of Jesus. Especially when they saw the length and the degree to which he was persecuted. Death on the cross. (laughs) And Jesus looks at them and says, If they come after me, they're coming after you. If you're going to be a Christian, you will be persecuted. You can bank on it, he says. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 2 says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. There's a word for suffering, persecution. We sent Timothy to encourage you so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Christian. Paul just said, you and I are destined for suffering. This is not what we want to think about when we think of our destiny. There's a church now called destiny. I'm guessing that's not what they mean. When the Bible uses the term destiny, it's meaning you are destined. You know what you're destined for? You know what you can count on? You know what your fate is? Suffering. So you've got some affliction in your life. You've got some pain in your life. You've got suffering in your life. You're fulfilling your destiny. Congratulations, you have found your destiny. That's not as glorious as we might like it to be. and it's, We might want to think, right, that no, no, no. De- my destiny is something else other than this. Good things, happy things, suffering. You are destined for affliction. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. He did not just say that. You hear that Paul is saying that when you suffer, it is granted to you. Do you know what that means? It's a gift. When you and I suffer as Christians, it is a gift from God. When you and I suffer, it's because God loves us. The way he talks about this, it has been granted to you not only to to believe the gospel. I mean, that's good, but it gets even better. Not only that you would believe the gospel, but then you would suffer for the gospel. He writes that in a, this is the icing on the cake sort of way. This is how good it gets for you, Christian. God is going to bring suffering into your life. This is how disciples can be thrown in jail and beaten within an inch of their life, and they leave singing songs about how thankful they are that God considered them worthy to suffer. You know, my kids are going to sit around a Christmas tree in a few more weeks, and we're going to exchange gifts and Mom and dad are going to grant them things. We're going to give them gifts and they're going to open them with, with expectation and they're going to be happy and they're going to love what they receive. It's with that same spirit that God brings suffering into the Christian's life. When the Christian suffers, he knows that God loves him. Friends, this is not just something that we make up to deal with suffering as human beings. 
This is assurance from God. And then one of the things we see most greatly, the good in suffering. Paul summarizes in Philippians 3, verse 10, in regards to his suffering, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that if Paul would write a book called What I Love About Suffering. No one writes that book today. No one would buy that book. And you, we'd assume it'd be some kind of a joke. Paul, in his writing, he writes that book, What I Love About Suffering. Top ten things. Here's number one for Paul. Paul says, when I suffer, when, when I experience pain, I understand a little better how much my God loves me. Because God's dem- love is demonstrated to us. How, how does God demonstrate his love for us? By suffering for us. God says, this is, this, is how, this is what God does with the cross, right? God says to his people, this is how much I love you. Okay, I am going to suffer in an incomparable way. I'm going to experience quintessential suffering. It will be the suffering. God says, I have allowed suffering into the world for the main purpose that I would suffer the greatest. Just think about that. Say, why doesn't God just end suffering? Well, understand that God gets the biggest brunt of suffering. So it sure can't be that he doesn't love us. And God on the cross, that is his display of his love for his people. And so when you and I experience pain, physical, emotional, spiritual One of the reasons that we can thank God for it is because if we remember when I experience pain and suffering, this is just a taste of what God endured for me. And when you're the greater your suffering, the greater your suffering, the greater your getting closer to apprehending that you will never get there, how much God loves you. Because when you suffer, and when I suffer, I think, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I mean, I get a, I get a head cold and feel like I can't have it another day, or I'm going to go insane. And that's nothing, nothing. I think of the greatest suffering and uncertainty and frustration and pain that I've experienced as a human being, and it's still nothing compared to what Jesus endured for me. But it is still pain, and it does still hurt, and it does make me cry, and it does make me sorrowful. And when I think that God, and remember that God endured that times a million, and that He did that to bring me to God, out of love for me, I love Him now more. You see how that works out? I love Him more. I, I want to worship Him more. I'm thankful more. I'm more grateful because of suffering. So God says, Paul says to Timothy, to us, if you desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. 
You're going to suffer, but not just suffer. You're going to suffer at the hands of other people because you love Jesus and they don't. William Barclay said, If anyone proposes to introduce into this life a loyalty which surpasses all earthly loyalties, then there are bound to be lashes and collisions. In other words, if you're going to decide in your life, which is what it means to be a Christian, among other things, that your loyalty is now to God above everything or else, you can expect some conflict. It's not going to go well. You're going to endure persecution. Now, let me answer this question or this concern. For a long time, I think I've struggled with this truth. And, and I've struggled with whether or not it's true. Because in my life, I don't think I've experienced much persecution. These verses ever seem foreign to somebody? When you, when you read, if you desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. When you hear Jesus say, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Have you ever felt like maybe that's an overstatement for you because there is no persecution? Some of you have not endured much persecution. Now, some of it is because you live in a, a free and tolerant society. At least that's what we usually dismiss it to and say, that's why, thank God, I'm, just, I'm in a place where we're not persecuted, whereas most of the world, and this is true, this is the reality outside America, most of the world, if they are Christians, there is state opposition to them that not only interferes with their faith, but harasses their faith, condemns their faith, and seeks to kill and destroy their faith and them. That's most of the world. And so we might just dismiss these verses and say, well, yeah, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. But, but, things are different. Things are different in America. And I want to suggest... A couple other possibilities to why these verses may not ring true for you and I. I desire to live a godly life. I'm not being persecuted. But Paul says, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So what's the deal? One possibility, optimistically speaking, is that you are being persecuted, but to a faint degree. Maybe you're mocked. Maybe you're made fun of. Maybe you don't get invited to the parties that you used to got invited to. You know, persecution. It's rough out there. <laughs> I mean, t technically, it's persecution. And we don't even want to call it that, but it's, it is. It, technically, that is persecution. I mean, when you picture Paul, you know, getting rocks thrown at his head, we don't even want to call it persecution when he doesn't return our call anymore. But it is. Technically, it is. If you're suffering or experiencing any kind of pain from others because you love Jesus and they don't, it is technically persecution. So it is possible that you still fit in the verse, that you are being persecuted, but it's just to a faint degree. But here are... Here are two other suggestions that I want to make. When Paul says that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted and you're not experiencing the persecution, this may be true. You don't desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ. That's, 
That's the, the big E on the eye chart. That's the elephant in the room. That's what we can't overlook as a possibility. If we read this verse and say, well, no, no, no. I desire to live a godly life, but I'm not being persecuted. So I'm not consistent with what Paul is saying. Well, maybe we have to examine ourselves. Maybe there's no persecution because there isn't really a desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Will you go there? I mean, Paul just got through saying that there is the appearance of godliness all over the place. It's rampant. The appearance of godliness means there is what looks like a godly life, but there isn't underneath it what Paul talks about here, a desire. A desire to live a godly life. Where I really love God. And I really love Jesus. And I really love the gospel. And I'm really devoted to Him. And I'm really committed to Him. The Scriptures seem to say that if that is the case, there will be persecution. Think about it. If we are telling the truth to a world that hates to be told truth and loves darkness, we will be persecuted. So maybe we're just not telling the truth. Maybe we're just not telling the truth. Maybe we call it speaking the truth in love, but it's just speaking love. And we forgot the truth. If we are a people who are going to speak the truth out of love and in a loving way, but if we are people who are going to speak the truth to a world that, do we not know this, Americans, that hates to be told what to do? To a world that hates to be told truth, that hates to be told what to do, but rather, John says, love darkness. Will that not lead to persecution in our lives? So friends, verse 12 just might be alarming, and rightly so, to many of us. Because maybe the persecution isn't there, just maybe, because you do not really desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But I want to show you another way now, the second thing, another way to be a part of being persecuted as a Christian. And it's simply this. Is it, is it possible that many of us do not feel or experience the pain of persecution because we as Christians today are not mourning with those who mourn and weeping with those who weep. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When God describes His community, when God describes His His household of faith, His family, and that's not just Veritas. I mean, we, we get it down manageable in local churches, but right, we're all a part of this, all Christians are part of this church, and we're all family And God, when He talks about His community and He talks about His family, He talks about this 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 connection that we all have with one another to where when when some of us are happy, there, there, there is an effect on the rest of us to where we're happy and we rejoice. And as well, that when others are mourning and when others are weeping, that those of us who are not are also mourning and weeping with them. And we are hurting 
And we are experiencing pain. And we are suffering to a lesser degree, but to a degree. Because our brothers and sisters are suffering. I would say, friends, that we have an obligation in this country where we are free of much persecution to not close our eyes to what most of our brothers and sisters are going through in the world. To share in their suffering. But I mean, we, we can just tend to do this. Just tunnel, tunnel vision. I'm so happy, so very happy. And we don't want it. We don't want anything to affect that. We don't want to see this. And we don't want to know what's going on in another country. And we don't want to know about persecution. We don't want to know about suffering. And we don't want to hear these stories. We don't, we don't want to know about the pastor who just a few weeks ago was killed in another country for being a Christian pastor and whose family is now alone. We don't want to know about churches that are firebombed. We don't want to know and read about what's going on in cultures where Christianity is illegal. And so in that, we ourselves, the reason is we get out of a lot of suffering. We get out of it. We don't have to feel that. We don't have to feel that pain. But when we immerse ourselves in that, or when we look at that, we then find ourselves as Christians sharing in that suffering. And while we're not persecuted personally, we do experience a bit of their persecution by sharing in their suffering and mourning with those who mourn and weeping with those who weep. And it's as easy for us as going to a website like persecution.com. Yes, that's a real website. It's persecution.com. You can go there this afternoon and you can share in suffering. You're not persecuting, right? You're not being persecuted right now? Well, go find someone who is. Share it. Pray for them. Think about them. Think about what they're enduring. Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? What kind of a brother and sister are we in the family of God if we're not awakened to the reality that persecution is really happening right now all over the world? And just because we're not experiencing it personally right now does not mean that we are those who do not have to share in any of that suffering. Maybe we have to work hard to go and find it or not work real hard. I think what most of us do is work hard at not finding it. I don't want to hear that story. I don't want to know what happened. I don't want to know what's going on. Because we don't want to suffer. But we should share in suffering. Do you believe God's Word is true? Do you believe that if you read or hear about this atrocity or this persecution or what they're going through? Do you believe that you do good and honor God when that drives you to pray? Do you believe that? That's what it comes down to. Do you believe that it's helpful? Do you believe that it's when you pray, it's a means of grace to those people that you may never even meet? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is honored and glorified in that? Or do you just dismiss that and say, no, there's nothing good that can come from it. I just need to enjoy my ride while I have it. Paul says, indeed, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. 
It may not be physical. It may not be personal. It may be pain right here because others around you are enduring. Augustine said as much when he said, even when no one harasses or vexes their body, for they suffer this persecution not in their bodies, but in their hearts. And some of us, if our eyes are open, we will suffer the persecution of others, which is personal and physical. We will suffer it in our hearts. Something to think about. And now Paul just continues to support what he has called Timothy to do. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, continue in the gospel. Now here's this other foundation. And he says, knowing Scripture and knowing the life of those who taught you Scripture. So the twin truths that he gives to... Again, encourage him to continue on. He calls him to continue in the gospel. And what are you knowing? What's going to help you? What are you knowing, Timothy? It's going to help you continue and press on. Knowing the scriptures. You need to know the scriptures. And not only know the scriptures, though, but to know from whom you learned it. So Paul is telling us that that if you're going to continue in the gospel, if we're going to continue in the gospel, we need to know Scripture. But there's something more. There's something else that is helpful. There's something that will help us to cross that finish line. And it is remembering the lives of some of those who have shared the gospel with us. Isn't that what Paul has just done? I mean, he's, he's helping Timothy to recall his own example. But now he points Timothy to his mom and his grandmother. He tells Timothy, remember who you learned it from. And we know from earlier in the first chapter that Timothy's dad was no Christian, but his mom and his grandmother were. And we know as we put the text together and we read this, that from a very young age, guess what mom and grandma were doing with Timothy? They were reading him God's word. They were getting him scripture. And what else do we know? We know that their life matched up. We know that they practiced what they preached. We know that when they shared the gospel and when they shared truth with Timothy, they lived it out because Paul now tells Timothy, you remember them? Do not forget your mom and your grandmother. Now he's not saying... You know, remember them because they were perfect and they never made any mistakes. And if if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, maybe you too can be perfect and never make any mistakes. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that there is something powerful, powerfully motivating and helpful for you, Timothy, if you will not only remember Scripture, but remember the lives of your mom and your grandmother Because they were steadfast and they lived it out. They were an example to you, Timothy. This should be what's taking place all over the place in the church. That not only we're getting scripture, not only are we hearing scripture, but then we're seeing and watching the lives of people who live out God's word. And who really obey God's word. And really mean what they say about God's Word. And Paul calls Timothy to remember 
Remember. I mean, do you know that when you do this today, if you've got kids or you've got grandkids, I mean, do we think that we're the first generation to sit on our kids' bed at night and read them some verses out of the Bible? Do you know Lois and Eunice were doing that 2,000 years ago with Timothy? And Paul tells Timothy that's one of the reasons you are who you are today. Because at night, your mom came in. And your grandma came in. You remember that, Timothy? From the time you were young and they shared Scripture with you. And they taught you God's Word. And they taught you God's truth. Parents and grandparents who are here today, is this an encouragement or an indictment? Will our children and will our grandchildren hear God's Word from us? You've been sold a lie if you think that's your pastor's job or your Sunday school teacher's job or your Christian school teacher's job or your coach's job. That's your job. It's your job. Can you say, can you imagine being able to say this to your children, to your grandchildren when they're older? Can you imagine saying to your sons and saying to your daughters what Paul says here to Timothy? Listen, I want you to continue in the gospel, son. I want you to continue in the gospel. And it's a way of helping and motivating you to continue in the gospel. I want you to remember God's word. Not only remember God's word, I want you to remember your daddy. I want you to remember how you saw this lived out. Can you say that to your kids? Can you say that to your grandchildren? Can you say that to your great-grandchildren? Can you say, you? not only did you hear the gospel from me. Some of us just need to start there. Not only did you hear the gospel from me, not only did you hear God's word from me, but do our children see the fruit of believing the gospel in our life? Or is it mere talk? Again, this does not mean perfection. Thank God. This does not mean sinlessness. Okay, our families are all full of sinners and our churches are all full of sinners, but they should be filled with repentant sinners. That's the difference between who's inside and outside the church. We're all sinners. We're repentant sinners in here. And we need repentant moms and dads and we need repentant grandmas and grandpas. Not parents and grandparents who don't sin, but parents and grandparents who when they sin, they admit it and they confess it and they seek forgiveness and they allow their children and their grandchildren to see their brokenness and to see their struggle and to see the tears and to see the anxiety and to hear you and watch you apply the gospel and apply truth to your own life, not just their life. Because you want to be able, like Paul does with Timothy, to say, don't just remember what I told you, but remember how I lived. And that's the encouragement to Timothy. Remember who you learned it from. And we want that too. And then verse 16 and 17, he closes with one of the most famous passages in our Bible. Paul's making a big deal of this book. Right, you get that 
you've been here for a while, you know we make a big deal of this book. What's the big deal? And that's what he answers here. This is the big deal. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Timothy, continue in the gospel. Remember Scripture. Remember who you learned it from. Scripture is very important. Handle Scripture. Be in Scripture. And this is why. Because all of Scripture is breathed out by God. This is not just a book. These are not just words. Authorship is everything. The author of this book is God. God wrote this book. And the way Timothy hears it from Paul is that it's breathed out by God. You, you and I cannot talk without breathing. Right, if you talk, you can do this later. Don't do it now. It would be a big distraction. But if you talk with your hand in front of your mouth, you can feel your talking. You can feel your talking. It has an effect. A breath comes out. If it was 30 degrees outside right now and we were outside talking, what would we see? We would see our breath. If you're in a cold car with the windows up, talking with your friends, the windows fog up. Your words have an effect, a physical effect. He's saying that when God speaks, when God has spoken, it has had a physical effect. The physical effect is you have a book. You have a Bible. What you and I, do we get this? What you and I are holding in our hands right here is an English translation of God's words. The reason we don't always, the reason we don't read God's word as much as we should is because we do not believe what we just said. Because if you believe that all of this is breathed out by God, what else are you going to read? We struggle with believing that this is breathed out by God. How much of it, Paul clarifies, all, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means that we cannot pick and choose. We do not get to pick and choose what we want out of this book. But isn't this the truth? You and I all want to pick and choose. Don't even lie. Don't even lie. There are parts of this book that you wish in your sinful nature did not exist. Don't even lie about it. You don't even go to those books of the Bible. That's why we have favorite verses. The implication is we have unfavorite verses. Some of you have favorite books of the Bible, which means you have unfavorite books of the Bible, like numbers. Like, why is that even there, you think to yourself? And so you don't read it. Some of you in your Bible reading, you just stick to the same books over and over again. Do you believe that all Scripture is God-breathed? I've heard people say, well, I'm kind of a New Testament Christian. What, the, what is that? I, I, I like to read the New Testament. Say, the New Testament God is happy. Old Testament God is grumpy. That's not the best summary. So he said, no, I'm only an Old Testament Christian. I like the Old Testament. New Testament, not so sure. There's a growing percentage of people in the evangelical church today that call themselves red-letter Christians. 
You ever heard of a red letter Christian? It sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Well, what I'm really, yes, I, I know, I know it's all good, but what I'm really interested in is the words of Jesus. Which sounds really good, except when you start reading the red letters, you find out that Jesus quotes a lot of black letters. (laughs) He quotes the Old Testament an awful lot. So are you really a red letter Christian? And he also says, right, to his disciples that, hey, pretty soon I'm going to leave. My Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to teach you more. He's going to bring my words and my truth and he's going to teach you more. Ding, ding. That's the New Testament. That is the New Testament. The Holy Spirit did what Jesus said he would, came and taught more. It's all Scripture. And it's all breathed out by God. And we do not get to pick and choose. We don't get to read and say, oh, I like that. I like that. Oh, highlighter, highlighter. Oh, I'm going to read that again next month. Oh, I'm going to journal about that. Oh, my. I'm never reading that again. We don't get to read our Bible like that. If I practice that as your pastor, there are many sermons that I've done in the last four years that never would have been preached. I'm not making that up. And that's one of the reasons we do expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is book by book, verse by verse. There are sermons that wouldn't get preached otherwise. I don't want to preach on that. I'm a terrible example of that. That will be one embarrassing sermon to give. I have been embarrassed giving sermons. Knowing that my life does not, does not, is not a commentary of the truth of God's word. Just embarrassing messages I've had to give. You didn't know it. I knew it. Embarrassed. Other passages, just uncomfortable. I mean, I've experienced that with First and Second Timothy. Like, seriously, suffering again? Lord, these people are not going to come back. We we get it. We get it. We're going to suffer. Okay. All right. Hammer it again. Hammer it again. Just want to skip. But we don't get to pick and choose. Why? Because all of it, friends, all of it is breathed out by God. Let me tell you what the verses you don't like, they just may need to become some of your favorite verses. I know for myself, the verses I don't like are the verses that are the most convicting. I don't want to read that. I'm not going to highlight that. I'm going to put a Sharpie over it. (laughs) That hurt. Which means that's probably something I need to read again. God, make me love your word. Make me love your truth. All of it, all of it, all of it. Now, because God's word is God's word, it's useful. Which is why he says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. To summarize, Paul has said, your continuance, true for us, your continuance in the gospel Your continuance in the Christian life, in the faith, has everything to do with how you and I handle this book. Everything. I'll pray. We'll share communion together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to handle this book well. God, thank you that 
Many of us, Lord, you know, have been faithless and you've been faithful. Uh, many of us, Lord, have, have struggled to really believe the worth of your word, have struggled to understand your word and have been discouraged by that. Lord, I pray that you, that part of growing us up in you would be growing us up in our love for your word. Father in heaven, please make us a people who really believe that these are words for life, that these are words from you, that we need them, that they are right and sweet like honey for our soul. And it's a light on our dark path. God, help us not to just say these verses, but to believe them. We do pray that you'd move even within our church and make us a people who love your word so that you would be glorified, so that you would be honored as we know you more, we worship you more, love you more, obey you more, delight in you more. We pray this in the good name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.